When I was in college uh, studying psychology at GMU, just down uh, the road here, some of my least favorite classes of all time were the classes in which we did experiments on a rat. Did any of you ever have classes in college where you had to do, okay. These are my least favorite ones. Doing experiments on a rat is no fun, especially when the rat isn't even real. Um, in several of my classes, we had the joy of interacting with a, a terrible early 2000s software program, having us do experiments on Sniffy the Virtual Rat. <laughs> Sniffy. Poor little Sniffy. The, the virtual rat was the victim of all sorts of various kinds of trials we would put him through, sometimes with positive reinforcement, like a um, computerized block of cheese, and sometimes negative reinforcement, like a computerized and very humane electric shock. <laughs> and what we learned, and what we're supposed to learn through and from Sniffy, was that life and behavior was mainly ruled by our own experiences, some good, some bad, some quite painful, especially if you're sniffy, and that depending on the outcome of these experiments, out came our personality, out came our perspective, out came our personal traits. This is one way to view life, that life just happens to us. We're mice in a cage. There's no thread that holds any of it together. It's all random. It's all luck. Or in some cases, it's all no luck. And that's about the end of it. That's about the gist of life. We're all just mice in a cage, experiencing life as it comes at us with no central thread. That's quite a depressing way to view life. But for many people, maybe for some here, that's basically how we view life. Random events, some good, some bad, nothing connecting at all. And so basically, you're on your own, and best of luck to you. The Bible, though, teaches us something radically different about life. It teaches us something very different about the reality of life, about what's happening in our stories. The Bible teaches us that from beginning to end, especially if you read Psalm 139, even before the beginning, that there's a God whose eyes see our unformed substance, and that from before our conception and throughout every second of every day of all of our lives, for every single person, there is a threat that connects it all. There is a God reigning above it all, and there is a Savior, a Redeemer, Jesus, who holds it all together. So we're not on our own. And if there was ever a prime teaching of this uh, in the Bible, and if there was ever a prime example of this in the Bible, that there is a connecting thread, and that there is a God who reigns even over evil, even over what seems to be utter darkness, uh, if there was ever a prime example of this, it would have to be the cross, wouldn't it? Because we know this through a worldly lens, just through a purely worldly lens, the cross is utter foolishness. The, the cross is humiliation. The cross is just a cruel injustice. But we know that for those of us who are being saved, 
The cross actually is something else. It's the power of God. The cross changes everything for us. It changes everything for our life, and it had changed everything for Paul as we've been tracking with him through our journey through Philippians. And even if this is your first time with us today, and this is your first time looking at Philippians, you'll see it. The cross had changed everything for Paul, especially as he writes this letter that we're reading today, sitting in a prison cell. Paul had learned a lesson. It was that we are no mice in a cage. We are held in the very nail-scarred hands of Jesus himself. Please turn in your Bibles with me, if you have one, to Philippians chapter 4. And we'll be looking at those four verses that Christiana read to us earlier. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 982. You'll see that we're getting to the end here of Paul's letter. And just like you and I might do if we were getting to the end of a very long personal letter to close personal friends, just like we might do, Paul also is getting reflective. And very briefly here, before we get into the main meat of what he's reflecting on, it's worth noticing, again, as the church, that as Paul reflects on his life, as he reflects on the highs and the lows, the, the pain and the joys, there is a thread that connects things for Paul, and it's the thread of the love of his brothers and sisters in the church. Even though he's isolated in prison, Paul is always aware, even though he can't see his spiritual family, that he is connected by a thread to his spiritual family. So Paul gets reflective here once again about the love that's present in his life even when he can't see it. In verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. The, the Philippians were concerned for him. He was in prison. Uh, they were concerned for him like you would be concerned for me if I was in prison. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. It's just a thread that is omnipresent in the life of a believer that even when I'm alone, even when I can't see my spiritual family, I'm connected with my spiritual family. A little observation here. Uh, something that interrupted for a time uh, Paul's communication with the Christians in Philippi. We have no idea what. There had been a period of time where they weren't in touch with one another. And now they're in touch again and Paul is encouraged. And what I want to point out here, this isn't the main point of the message, just a little add-on, a little extra, is that Paul describes their concern, their love for him being revived in botanical language, like a plant coming back to life after a long winter, or in the case of Northern Virginia, uh, no winter. Um, it had looked like it was dead. It had looked like it was dormant. There had been no activity there, and yet there was something uh, more true about it because it was rooted in the love of Christ. And so it, it became springtime again. That happens in the church. That happens uh, with fellow believers. That things can look dead. Things can look dormant. Things can turn gray. And yet there is life there. So Paul is using botanical language like a, of a plant coming back to life after the springtime. I've got to throw in one dad joke here if you don't mind. Can I do this? Mike, you with me on this one? Uh, you could say that Paul was encouraged by church plants. Thank you. I didn't even, nothing. Okay. Um, he just, uh, they couldn't leave each other alone. Okay. 
So, now, let's move on quickly, please. Lord, help me. Get out of here. Now, he's been reflective about the church, this thread in his life of, of love with one another in his life. And now, Paul is reflecting on the, the journey of his life in the past, the experience of his life in the past, in the rearview mirror. And he's also looking around at the experience of his life in the present. And what Paul is saying is that through it all, past and present, the times of abundance and need, times of being even in a prison cell, he's learned something invaluable. And it's good timing for us on this first Sunday of Lent then, uh, for us to join Paul in this and to do the same thing he did. And on this journey of Lent, of preparation for Easter, what we are invited to do is to look back on every experience of our life and to look around at our current, present experience of our life. And lest we think that it's all random, lest we think that we're just taking life as it comes at us, lest we think that there is no connecting thread Paul wants us to make sure we've learned the same lesson he has. And so he continues to show us here some ways the gospel's gotten a hold of him, completely changed his life, and it can completely change our life too. And the first thing he points out is that every experience of his life, past and present, is all part of the school of the gospel. The school of the gospel. Verse 11, Paul writes this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. If you look at those two verses, you'll see Paul repeat himself a few times here. In two verses, Paul says, I have learned. I know how. Again, he says it. I know how. And again, I have learned. But what exactly has he learned? To be content in every situation. Mountaintop joys for him. Painful lows and everything in between. Paul has experienced how to be brought low. Literally, that means how to be humiliated. He's experienced how to abound, how to face plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he has learned how to face. This is quite an all-inclusive statement. He's learned how to face, quote, at the end of verse 12, how to face this at middle of verse 12, in any and every circumstance. Paul is saying he's learned through Jesus how to handle whatever life throws at him. That he knows how to do it because he's been to school. He's been to school. And when you go to school, you learn. You gain an ability to know how to do things. But just to, just to press this point even further, how exactly do you learn in school? By being taught. And Paul is not saying, I have figured some things out in life. Paul is not saying, by trial and error, I have figured some things out. Paul is saying, I have been taught. I have been instructed. You don't just walk into school, sit down at a desk, and have information download itself into your brain, as much as, as I would have loved that to happen in math class. That's not the way it happens. You are taught. You are instructed by an instructor. And so what Paul is saying is that 
you and I in Christ are taught by a teacher. He's framing the entire human experience, good and bad, highs and lows, abundance and need. In this way, he's saying it's a school. It's not random. It's not just this uh, mixture of things coming at you and factors and your genetics and your this and your that. He's saying, no, you're actually held by Christ. You are held by Christ. And so whatever you go through as you walk through life's lessons, you are actually being taught by Jesus himself. And you're being drawn to Jesus himself. This is another example of Paul looking at life through what we've called gospel illumination. He looks back at his past experiences and he looks around at his present experience and he sees clearly that every single moment of it, every experience that he has had were part of the school of the gospel because Jesus had gotten a hold of him and was teaching him through two core classes And the two core classes Paul points out here in the school of the gospel are abundance on the one hand and need on the other. Abundance and need. Paul had known, we know this through Paul's own testimony, what we know about him, he had known abundance in his life. There were significant, prolonged seasons of his life when Paul had had everything he needed. We heard him say this earlier in Philippians 3, 5, how he was of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, elite. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, elite. As to the law, a Pharisee, the elitist of the elite. So Paul had been quite well off. He had been feared, respected, protected, free to travel wherever he wanted. He had been a Roman citizen. He's a good speaker, as we can see. He's a good writer. He had received advanced training in the school of abundance. He had graduate studies on that topic, But now, and really ever since Jesus had intervened in his life, he was receiving advanced training in the the core class of need, of lack, of poverty. God uses and God redeems abundance and need to teach us. But to teach us what, ultimately? It teaches a lot of little things, a lot of helpful things. But one thing ultimately that God is teaching us through abundance and through need, and Paul tells us what that is in verse 11. I have learned, it means I've been taught in whatever situation, I am to be content. Abundance and need. The two core classes of the gospel, both teaching us the same lesson at the end of the day. How to be content in whatever situation. Goodness, this sounds easy to say, but this is hard to live. It might have been easy for Joseph in Genesis 45 and 46 when he was at the top of the Egyptian administration, when he had finally reconciled with his brothers and seen his dad again and provided for his family. But it wasn't so easy for Joseph in Genesis 37 when his brothers had sold him into slavery where he was for over 10 years and convinced their dad that he was dead. It was easy for David in 2 Samuel 5 when he takes the throne as king, but it wasn't so easy for David in 1 Samuel 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and on and on and on. 
when Saul and his armies were trying to kill him. It's easy when you get the job. It's not so easy when you're unemployed for two and a half years. It's easy when you're surrounded by friends in your high school. It's not so easy when you're all alone. It's easy when you see your prayers being answered. It is not so easy, not easy at all, when God is silent. Hindsight about what God is up to in our lives, hindsight is 2020. And sometimes that hindsight comes in this life on earth. Other times, that hindsight, that perspective on what God is up to in all of this does not come until we're with Jesus. In the moment, in this life, things are rarely ever that clear. And Paul is not wallpapering over that fact. Paul doesn't know how everything's going to turn out. He doesn't know how it's all going to play out. But what he does know is what he has learned, which is to be content in whatever classes God has sovereignly enrolled him in. Now, all of us, I imagine, if we could choose, if we had a choice, would, of course, choose to learn through abundance, even though if you follow the stories of people who win the lottery or of most celebrities, you would soon realize that abundance isn't the shortcut to contentment that it's all cracked up to be. Abundance may seem to be an easier class from afar, but scripture seems to indicate otherwise. God will oftentimes use abundance in our life to teach us contentment by showing us how quickly we build up a thousand little altars to a thousand little idols before God comes and crushes them all to dust. God will often, though, choose to enroll us in a more difficult class, the class of need, of hunger, of pain, of suffering. And this class will also teach us contentment. A few months ago, I read an update from uh, an author, teacher, pastor that I really like named Randy Alcorn, and he was reflecting on the loss of his wife uh, 11 months ago to colon cancer. He wrote about how one morning uh, Nancy was reading through Psalm 119. It's a long psalm, and one verse in particular of that psalm stood out to her that morning. Psalm 119, verse 91, which says this, quote, All things are God's servant. All things our God's servant. In response, Nancy Alcorn journaled this. My cancer is God's servant in my life. He is using it in ways he has revealed to me and in many more I have yet to understand. I can rest knowing my cancer is under the control of a sovereign God who is good and does good. Was that cancer evil? Yes, but God is good and God does good. And so we can look back over our lives at abundance and need. And we can look back at times in our life, either past or present, of incredible suffering, of incredible darkness, of sickness, of things that aren't right, of things that are evil, of attack, of tragedy. And we can see like Paul in Romans 8, how God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We don't ever understand the why. 
why God? We don't know why, but we know who. We know that God is a redeemer. He redeems all things. Nothing is wasted. God is good. God does good. And so we can say with Paul, I have learned. I've not learned the why. I might not ever ever understand the why until I get to heaven. I don't know the why, but I know to be content because God has taught me. And I can't explain it because I have a peace that passes understanding. And it's a supernatural peace. It's given me a supernatural trust and a supernatural God who is teaching me supernaturally lessons. This is what God has shown so many of you here today. I know if we could pass the microphone around and share testimonies of, of the valleys of the shadow of death that so many of you have walked through or, or, walk, or are walking through, you would have testimonies of this, of the, the, the lesson that God has taught you even in heartbreak, the lesson that God has taught you even in tragedy and loss and weeping, the lesson that God has taught us of simply trust, 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 content in every situation. This is the school of the gospel and the lesson in abundance and the lesson in need is simple and yet not so simple and it's to be content. But the gospel never calls us to do something without giving us the power to do it. And now we learn the secret How? How to be content in every situation. Here's the how. Here's the secret. Verses 12 and 13. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's how to be content. Here's what the school of the gospel has taught him and can teach us. In any and every circumstance, on a mountaintop or in a valley, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What a verse, amen? What a promise. What confidence we have in Christ, really. This is not just words. I'm not just preaching a sermon. This is true. This is the truest thing that's ever been true. What is our only hope in life and death? Christ alone. What is our only confidence that our souls to him belong? You and I can stand right now, today, absolutely solid on the cornerstone of Christ. We can rest secure, hidden inside of Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I want to make sure we get this verse right. Let's make sure we read this verse in context. Remember what Paul has been addressing. Specifically, he's been addressing abundance and need. He's been addressing the specific things that God calls us into in our our lives. He's been addressing those things. And now he's continuing to address those things. Abundance and need, everything in between, part of God's sovereign plan. Addressing those things, Paul says, I can do all things. Those things. I think the NIV gets it a bit more more crisp in how it, it gets at it in our language. Paul is saying, I can do all of this through him, through Jesus who gives me strength. Whatever comes my way, whatever God brings before me, I can do it through Christ. This faith, this trust, this hiddenness in Christ is how someone like 
um, the hymn writer Horatio Spafford, who wrote the hymn, It Is Well, could face financial ruin and then could face the tragic loss of, uh, loss of several of his children. And he could write these words in response. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Is he just passively removed from life? No. Is he feelingless? No. Is he emotional? Is he an emotional kind of brick wall? No, he feels it. And yet he trusts. He doesn't know why, but he knows who. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. Do I want to experience this suffering? No. Would I have written my story very differently if I had been in charge? Absolutely, yes. But God is in charge, and God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I've got my eyes on Jesus, the one who trusted in that truth enough to walk willingly to the cross. I can keep my eyes on that Jesus then. And so when either peace like a river attendeth my way or when sorrows like sea billows roll, I can say, it is well. I can do all things. I can do all of this through him, through Jesus who strengthens me. I don't know what's coming at me. I don't know why. I might not ever understand why. I wasn't planning on this. I didn't want this. It's not very pleasant. But even though I don't know how it's all going to play out, even though I can't map it all out for you, I know that I can do this through Jesus. And maybe some of you this morning need to know that. You can do it. You can do it through Jesus. You might not have any understanding of what's going to even happen tomorrow. Nothing might make any sense. But you can do it through Jesus. Whatever he's called you to do. Whatever trial you're facing in your life. Or whatever abundance God has chosen to trust you with. You can do it through Christ who strengthens you. This verse, it's worth pointing out. This verse can be taken out of context. You've probably heard it taken out of context. You might have used it <laughs> out of context. It can be misused. It can be used to imply that we can just do whatever we want through Jesus. Or that we should be able to do anything because Jesus gives us strength. It's as if Paul was saying, I can do anything through him who gives me strength. He's not saying that. There are some things we're not supposed to do. There are places we're not supposed to go. There are jobs we're not supposed to take. There are doors that God closes. I've shared with you on a superficial level before how bad I am at building things or at fixing things. You should have seen me this week trying to tighten the bolt that holds my faucet up in my kitchen, keep it from swiveling. You would have thought I was trying to build the Taj Mahal or something in my house this week. I am not very good at building things or fixing things. And so if you ever catch me trying to build something with my bare hands, and I say, well, Philippians 4.13 says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Throw something at me. That's not what it's here for. It's a, it's a specific assurance for us in the gospel, not taken out of context to say we can do whatever we want to do, being used in context as an assurance of our shepherd to say that we can do what he has called us to do. We can do it through him. We can claim this promise as believers. Whatever class God enrolls us in, in his school, whatever class he enrolls you in, you walk into that classroom totally in Christ. That's what he's saying. This has the power to change our life. 
Because what it has the power to do is change, again, our perspective on experiences in the past and our experience of life in the present. Paul gets at this whole Christian idea here of contentment, of gospel contentment in Christ by turning worldly philosophical contentment completely upside down. And here's where uh, we'll close today with this whole idea of rock, solid, unshakable contentment in Christ. The philosophers of Paul's day and the philosophers of our day, even if it's just pop philosophy that you hear in songs or in Disney movies, whatever you want to call it, says this, contentment comes basically by way of two ingredients, independence and self-sufficiency. Paul, when he wrote this letter, would have been quite familiar with that philosophy, quite well-versed and conversant with it. He would have known the wisdom of Plato. Here's uh, how Plato said contentment could be attained. Quote, man should be sufficient unto himself for all things and able by the power of his own will to resist the force of circumstances. That's worldly philosophical wisdom from like 300 BC. And boy, is that familiar to our modern ears, isn't it? Independence and self-sufficiency. But politely, but firmly, the gospel thunders in response, no, (laughs) no. The secret of contentment is not independence and self-sufficiency. The secret is dependence on Christ's sufficiency. Amen? Amen. Jesus himself is sufficient for us in all things. And Jesus is able, and Jesus is able alone by the power of his Holy Spirit to make us dependent and more dependent and more dependent upon him in every, in every, in every circumstance. Whatever God calls you to do, he will provide strength for you to do it by his spirit in Christ. Whatever abundance he brings upon you or whatever need he opens up in your life, whatever struggle you're walking through, whatever valley you are in, even this very afternoon when you leave from here, this coming week, whatever you are going to face at home, at work, at school, in your family, You can do it in Christ, not because you are sufficient, but because Christ is sufficient, not because you reach such an impressive state of independence, but because you have reached such a humble state of dependence, dependence on Christ's sufficiency. Our contentment in all the situations of our life, all up and down the roller coaster of life, will not come from a situation or a circumstance being resolved to our liking. Because situations and circumstances in our life are like that game I, I play at Chuck E. Cheese with my kids once in a while, whack-a-mole. If my contentment... If my happiness in life is based on me solving one situation, I'm in big trouble. Because the second I get that situation resolved to my liking, the next one pops up. 
Our contentment must be anchored to Christ. Remember last week that hymn I quoted? My anchor holds within the veil of Christ. When we receive that peace from him, from him that passes all understanding, we can say with Paul, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, popularity and ridicule, unpayable bills, medical difficulties, family strife, depression, addiction, grandchildren, happy things, engagements, broken relationships. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the school and the secret of the gospel. Contentment in Christ in every situation. Contentment in the one who holds it all together. There is a thread. There is a thread. There is a savior. There is a redeemer. There is a God who is working all things together for the good of those who love him. And this contentment comes when we understand what he's up to and when we don't. When we have abundance, when we have need, when peace like a river attends our way or when sorrows like sea billows roll. I'd like for us to pray for a moment and just pray again that the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, would plant this deep down in our souls. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. We praise you that you are good and you do good. We trust you, Lord. Help us to trust you. Father, I pray that by your spirit you would teach us and instruct us in whatever classes you enroll us and that you would reveal this secret to us of contentment in Christ. It's an old worship song I used to sing when I was a kid. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. We can do all things through you. Praise you, God. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.